Beloved, in Jesus Christ our Lord, we have an inexhaustible portion of encouragement for our souls. And I have very good news for you. He has promised to satisfy those who hunger and thirst for him. So this morning, if you're weary or discouraged in some way, you're in the right place. Let me invite you now to listen to his voice from the book of Haggai. Please turn with me in your copy of the scriptures to Haggai chapter 2 as we consider the first nine verses. Haggai chapter 2 verses 1 to 9. And let's ask the Lord for his help as we approach his word. Let's pray. Father, you know the hearts of those who are gathered here today. You are well acquainted with all our ways. Lord, you are our help in ages past and our hope for years to come. You are our refuge and our strength, a very present help in times of trouble. So speak, O Lord, and help us see that your grace is sufficient for all our needs. Help us see that Jesus is more than enough, that your word is all sufficient, and that your presence, your spirit, is a comforter like no other. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I wonder if you know Jacob. Let me tell you about him. Jacob has been a Christian for a couple of years now. He regularly attends church. He serves on the welcome team. And he genuinely loves the members of his congregation. Jacob also desires to get married. But he hasn't found the right woman yet. He often gets frustrated and discouraged when he sees all his friends getting married. And sometimes entertains the thought of leaving his church to go somewhere else where he can meet a potential spouse. So one day... Jacob went to his pastor for counsel. Jacob's pastor heard him and told him that his desire to pursue marriage was a good thing. But he also told Jacob to take his discouragement to Christ, to trust in his heavenly father's wisdom concerning his situation and to fight for contentment in Christ alone. He encouraged Jacob to pray to the Lord for a godly spouse, but he also gently cautioned him that in the pursuit of godliness to guard his heart and to be careful not to make marriage an idol. Pursue contentment, wait patiently on the Lord and continue to serve others as an obedient Christian. Ask the Lord for grace and he will strengthen you, said his pastor. Now Jacob took his pastor's counsel to heart and here's what he did. He threw himself into a frenzy of service, so he looked after kids in the congregation. He helped couples move homes. He cooked meals. He helped tired moms wash dishes. He drove folks around. He attended every church conference. And Jacob genuinely seemed to be joyful in doing all of that. But after a while, Jacob got frustrated again because the Lord had still not given him a wife. And so Jacob sunk into depression. And he even began to entertain the idea of 
dating this non-Christian woman at work who seemed to be interested in him. You see, for Jacob, obedience to God began to lose its charm when there was no immediate reward, at least the kind that Jacob was longing for. I wonder if you know Jacob. I wonder if you are Jacob. Beloved, do you find obedience to the Lord to be discouraging sometimes? Have you stopped to consider your ways, to examine what motivates your obedience? You know, I suspect that many of us are like Jacob. We obediently jump into action, but soon find out that all is not well with our hearts. And in these moments, we need to be reminded of precious gospel truths once again. Now, the people of Israel found themselves in a similar situation in 520 BC. When the first wave of exiles returned to the land, they eagerly erected an altar and they laid the foundation of the temple. But due to local opposition and political instability, work began to slow down. Soon people began to prioritize other things and eventually all construction came to a halt in the second year of the reign of Darius. And so for the first time after the exile, God spoke through his prophet Haggai and he charged his people with misplaced priorities. And the Lord reminded them of their covenant obligations and the necessity and the importance of rebuilding the temple. At that point in redemptive history, God's covenantal relationship with his people was tied to the institutional reality of the temple by which his people could draw near to him. So the rebuilding of the temple was about the Lord's self-disclosure. The temple and its system of sacrifices were given to Israel to remind them of who the Lord was and what he had done for them. This was about his communion with his people. This was about his redemptive purposes, his honor, his name, his glory. Now, if you want to learn more about why and how the temple fits into God's big plan of salvation for sinners, just go to our website and listen to last week's sermon on Haggai chapter 1. Now, as a result of Haggai's preaching, the people obeyed. They obeyed God and they resumed their work on God's house only to face a new challenge. Discouragement. Discouragement. And so the Lord spoke through Haggai again. Only this time, it wasn't to rebuke them, but to encourage them and strengthen them for the task. So in our passage this morning, I want you to note how the Lord encourages and spurs his people on. This text can teach us a great deal about our God and how we can be encouraged and encourage one another as God's children. These verses teach us that God's people experience encouragement from his presence and his promises. Number one, his presence, and number two, his promises. Those are the points of our sermon this morning. Now, when the word of the Lord came through Haggai to Zerubbabel and Joshua and the people, we are told in chapter 1, verse 15, that they began to work on the 24th day of the sixth month. But 28 days into the project, we see that the people, the remnant who obeyed him, they needed to hear from the Lord again. Look at verse 1. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, 
the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. And so the Lord spoke because his people were discouraged and frustrated with their efforts. They didn't see the results that they wanted. I say that because when you read the entire passage, it becomes obvious that they were not too happy with the way things were unfolding. So look at verse 3. In verse 3, we can see that whatever they were doing did not amount to much in their estimation. And so they needed to hear an encouraging word from the Lord. But notice the Lord's timing. The text says that it was the 21st day of the seventh month. Now, according to the Israelite calendar, this would have coincided with the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles was a celebration and remembrance of how God took care of his people in their wilderness warning, uh, wanderings before bringing them into the promised land. So Leviticus 23 verse 41 tells us that the people of Israel were to observe this feast as a lasting ordinance for generations to come. Now, during this time, during the feast, the Israelites would leave their homes and live in temporary shelters, little booths. All the people who like camping are getting excited now. Right? They would live in these temporary booths and they would do this in happy memory of how God sustained them and protected them during the Exodus. Now the fact that they were to celebrate this always, even after coming into the land, meant one thing. It was meant to remind them that they were pilgrims in this world. And just like Abraham, they too were supposed to look forward to a better country, a heavenly one. God's kingdom in all its permanent glory was yet to come. But the celebration would have also reminded them of the impermanence of all earthly worship centers. So even as the people worked to build the Lord's house, there were these constant reminders of impermanence and, and transience all around them. And this was supposed to be a joyous time for the people. They were to remember the goodness of their Redeemer, whose dwelling place they were now constructing. But instead of joy, there were dark clouds of discouragement hanging over their heads. What an appropriate time for them to hear God's word. What an appropriate time. Brothers, when you are discouraged, don't run from the Lord. Run to him. Don't listen to the voices in your head. Open your Bible and listen to his voice. You know, God meets us in our discouragement by ministering to our hearts through his spirit-inspired word concerning his son. His word can lift us out of despair and provide us a sweet relief. I know that many of us can testify to this fact that God has often met us in his word in our darkest hour. Whether you read his word or hear it proclaimed to you by another believer, the Lord encourages his people through his word heard, believed, and applied. Beloved, God will sustain the faith and the ministry of his saints. We have a firm foundation for our faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he has said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? And this is what the Lord said. Verse 2. 
Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say. So Haggai is instructed to bring the Lord's word to Zerubbabel, a descendant of King David. He is to speak to Joshua, the high priest, the one who represented God's people to God and ministered in the house of God. He's also to speak to the remnant, those who listened and obeyed the voice of God in chapter 1. And as soon as you hear the names of these leaders and the mention of the remnant who obeyed, you're supposed to know that what comes next has its foundation in that special saving relationship that God has with his people. Between Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, and his chosen people, Israel. And now the Lord speaks and his word exposes their hearts. He gives them a divine diagnosis of their discouragement. Here's what he says, verse 3. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? You see, God's great plan of salvation was unfolding as his people returned from their exile and began rebuilding the temple. And yet there was nothing glamorous about this task. I mean, just think about this. Working on a 60 plus year old pile of rubble would have seemed so daunting to these newly returned expats. Remember, Solomon's temple had been burned to the ground. There was no gold here, no silver, no glitz, no glory. Just a foundation, a makeshift altar, a pile of rubble. You know, this would have required a slow and systematic building process. Slow plodding. And it was discouraging to the people. And this was not the first time that the returned exiles had this sort of reaction. When the foundation of the temple was laid several years earlier, Ezra records a similar situation. Ezra 3, 11 to 12. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and the heads of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. It wasn't the same. Whoever had seen Solomon's temple in all its glory would have been discouraged. And so God asks, is there anyone here who's old enough to remember how things looked like when Solomon's temple was standing before everything was looted and destroyed? How does this look to you now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? That's a negative expression. It's like non-existence. They thought poorly of it. You see, God knew that they were playing the comparison game. Whatever they had started to build was far from complete. The progress was very little and what they had to achieve right now seemed impossible to reach. It was a day of small beginnings. And they were discouraged that they weren't accomplishing much, not getting the results they wanted. Now remember how this group of people had responded earlier when they were confronted. God told them that the rebuilding of his temple was about his glory. And when the people realized that God himself had brought upon them their harsh economic conditions, they repented. 
they feared the Lord and obeyed his word and started working on God's house. And to these people, God does not come with a word of rebuke. But he comes with words of encouragement. You see, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He does not say, oh, after all that I've done for you, is this all you can do? No, he doesn't say that. Look at what he says. Verse 4. Yet now, be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares of the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. Just as he had done earlier in chapter 1, verse 13, the Lord reminds them of his personal empowering presence. Be strong, he says. Now, what is that supposed to do? Well, it's meant to encourage them to work because the Lord of hosts was with them. You see, when we're discouraged, so often we're focused on the task at hand, the task before us, what God has called us to do. So often we are focused on the results. So often we are focused on our own abilities, what we're able to achieve. But in all our obedience, the Lord wants us to be focused on Him. To be motivated by a love for Him. To be mindful of His infinite wisdom and the immeasurable greatness of His sovereign power. See, these people wanted to heed God's word in their difficult circumstances. They wanted to get their priorities right for the sake of pleasing God, but they were soon discouraged. And so God graciously encourages them. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. James 4, 6. You see, even in the Old Testament, those who heed God's word and obey him, those who are in a saving relationship with him, God treats with kindness. He gives them more grace. You see, the present structure was indeed a, a faded and dim shadow of that former temple. God had given these Jews fantastic promises of the future, but they wanted too much of the future in the present. They wanted too much of the future now. And so God lovingly corrects that. Instead of telling them to chin up and pull themselves up by their own bootstraps or yelling at them like a military officer, the Almighty God of the armies of heaven encourages them as a father would his children. And he spurs them on to work. Be mindful of the reality of my presence, he says. You know, the Lord knows what his children need, doesn't he? He knows that. Imagine if your child comes running to you at night, your son, and he says, Dad, there's a monster in my room. And you get up and you go to his room and, and you find out that what he's really scared of is a, is a pile of clothes on a lampstand and that's casting a frightening shadow on the wall. What do you say to your son? I can't believe you're so stupid. You woke me up for this. No, you wouldn't say that. You would say to your son, son, that's only a shadow. It does look like a scary monster, doesn't it? But look close, closer. Let me teach you how to look at things. It's just a pile of clothes on the lampstand. And dad's here. You don't have to be afraid. 
you can go back to sleep now. You drive away his fears by speaking the truth in love and assuring him of your presence. And that's comforting to your child. And that only works, this is very important, that only works because you're his dad and he trusts you. Otherwise, a mere presence is meaningless. You won't get the same response from your son if you say, oh, don't worry, Hussein from the grocery downstairs will come and sit with you. It won't work. It's because you're his dad. Beloved, our heavenly father is an encouraging father to his children. As you read his word, or as you hear it spoken to you by others, his spirit strengthens our faith in what he has done for us in Christ. The spirit, his abiding presence is a helper. He is the paraclete or the comforter. He encourages us to do what Christ has called us to do. Friends, gospel encouragement strengthens our faith. It makes us glad. It lifts up our spirits. It fills us with hope and propels our obedience. The Lord tells his people, I know you're discouraged by what you see. Be encouraged by what you do not see. I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. So work, keep at it. Be steadfast in the task of building the house of the Lord. And what is even more comforting is that these words, they've heard before. These words are reminiscent of David's words to his son Solomon when he was building the Lord's house. 1 Chronicles 28 verse 20. Then David said to Solomon his son, Be strong and courageous and do it. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. For the Lord God, even my God, is with you. He will not leave you or forsake you until all the work for the service of the house of the Lord is finished. You see, it was the Lord's presence that made it possible to build Solomon's temple, and it would be the Lord's presence that would make it possible to build Haggai's temple. But did you notice that even though God addresses the, the leaders and the people, um, he exhorts them to act together. The word work in verse 4 is in plural, meaning all of you work together in building my house. Beloved, this is God's encouragement to his covenant people. In encouraging them to be steadfast or strong, Haggai helps them to see a continuity between them and the saints of old. This is how God encouraged Joshua who brought them into the promised land the first time. Joshua 1.9, God said, have I not commanded you? Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Now last week we considered how the purpose of the temple and its sacrifices all pointed forward to Jesus, the true temple. And in him, those who are united to him are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's Ephesians 2, 19 to 22. The church is now the temple of God. God's Spirit now abides in a people, in a body of believers, not spatially within the walls of a physical structure. There is now no longer sacred space, so to speak. Therefore, as Christians, we are not called to build a physical temple, but we are called to spiritually build up the church, the body of Christ, to, to labor for the sanctification 
of a people to labor for the building up of the temple of the Holy Spirit made of living stones, people. And so as we speak the truth to one another in love, when we do that, as we preach and teach, as we disciple and evangelize folks, as we counsel and correct, as we do those things, very often we can find ourselves being discouraged, disappointed by what we see. We can be discouraged when we don't see people coming to faith. We can be discouraged when a, a brother rejects counsel and continues in his stubborn ways. We can be discouraged when we see a sister who continues to live with misplaced priorities. We can be discouraged when we see a brother who has been a Christian for 10 years but still has the spiritual maturity of a two-year-old. And beloved pastors can get discouraged too. Theologically, we understand that the church is the bride of Christ. We understand that Jesus died for the church. God has determined to display his saving wisdom and glory to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places all through the church. We understand that to equip God's people, his blood-bought saints, and to be involved in that is to be involved in the greatest cause in the universe because one day the church will be glorious, pure and blameless, without spot or blemish, radiant and beautiful. But there are days when the congregation doesn't look like much. And we're reminded of the Lord saying to us in his word, how do you see it now? Does it seem like nothing in your eyes? Brothers, when you are discouraged, remember the words of the one who died for you. Remember the words of the one who rose from the dead, who baptized you into his body, who made you his own, and has given you his spirit as a guarantee of the glory to come. Remember the words of the one who said, Lo, I am with you always, and I will never leave you nor forsake you. So brothers, what sustains you? What keeps you motivated in your obedience? Should it not be the Lord's presence? Do you love his presence? Is his presence enough for you? Beloved, his presence is our comfort. It is no small thing. When you obey him, when you labor faithfully to build up his church, darkness, discouragement, difficulty, despair will all come knocking on your door. Where will you turn to then? Oh, beloved, let your moments of discouragement help you examine your heart. Consider your ways. Go to a brother or sister and say, I'm discouraged. Help me. Please help me. Do you remember Jacob? Jacob who was busy building up the community, serving God's people and being challenged in his own life. He faced discouragement because God was not giving him a wife in exchange for his obedience. Brothers, if obedience to God is motivated by what you can get out of him, you're going to be disappointed. Because get this, God is not obligated to give you a spouse, period. I hope all you single folks heard that. He's not obligated to do so. You might say, well, don't I deserve one? No, you don't. 
In fact, if you understand the gospel of grace, then you know that the only thing we deserve for what we've done is eternal suffering and damnation, weeping and gnashing of teeth, unceasing sorrow and never-ending pain. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, we have been saved. Everything else, a spouse, children, car, good health, three meals a day, health insurance, fresh coffee, all of it is a bonus. So what do we get because of grace? We get Jesus. And he is enough. And he is more than enough. And that is why the hymn writer says, when darkness seems to hide his face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Don't waste your discouragements because very often they will reveal to you your sinking sand. It will tell you what you've been standing on. You know, sometimes God is so kind and so loving that he does not give us what we want and when we want it so that we will turn back to him and find our satisfaction in him alone. You know, one author put it like this. He said, if Jesus is the only thing on the menu, then you will know if you're really hungry for him or not. Beloved, you know you have given into idolatry when your heart says, if only I could have this, then I will be happy in my obedience. Jesus plus whatever you want, that combination does not have the power to sustain your obedience or your perseverance. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 that it empties the cross of its saving power. No, Jesus alone, his presence alone, his spirit alone who encourages and empowers us when we put our faith in the gospel, in the word, he alone can sustain and strengthen us for the task of building up his church. See, by promising his presence, God was saying that he was enough for this mammoth task. And this was no general presence that he's talking about. It's not like he's saying, oh, I'm spirit, I'm all over the place, so I'm with you. No, this has to do with that special saving covenant relationship with his people. In fact, he's explicit about it. Look at the text. He says, I am with you, verse 5, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. God says, remember Egypt? Remember how I redeemed you from slavery? Remember the promises I made? See, just as the Lord had been with them during the Exodus, so also now he was with them and his spirit remained with his people. Now, of course, there's a difference between that and the indwelling of the spirit in believers now. Now, because of what Jesus has done, the spirit dwells in us and not merely among us. And we are told in the New Testament that we have not received a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but we have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, 
Father, Romans 8.15. You see, his is not a presence that causes us to remain enslaved to our fears, to remain enslaved to our anxieties and our self-centered approach to obedience. But his is a presence of a loving father who comforts us and lifts us out of despair. He lifts up our heads to see Jesus, the one who bore our burdens, the one who sustains our hope, and the one who will bring us safely home. But the very mention of God's Spirit in this passage tells us that there were some in Old Testament Israel who were being ministered to by God's Spirit in a special way. And friends, it's here that we get to learn a very important gospel truth. Not everyone can claim that God is with them in this way. See, His presence is given to His redeemed people, to a people He has a saving relationship with. Now, what does this mean for us? It means that it is only those who have been bought and redeemed by the blood of Jesus who can enjoy God's presence in this way, who needn't fear anything. It is those who have repented of their sins and put their trust in the one to whom the temple pointed to. They can know gospel encouragement. Friends, because of what Christ has done, God's Spirit causes us to be born again when we hear the gospel. We receive new hearts and new affections and we can now turn to Christ as our greatest treasure and our only hope. Now, if you're here and you're not a Christian, then I want you to know that what we need most for life and flourishing is God's presence. God has determined that when he created us. To know him and enjoy him. This is what it means to be human, to be created in God's image. See, just as fish were created to flourish in water, we were created to enjoy God's presence, to depend on his word and to glorify him. But instead of doing that, the Bible tells us that our first parents decided to do otherwise. They decided to turn away from his word and depend on their own wisdom. And the Bible calls that self-destructive act sin. Rebellion. And for that rebellion, God has judged us and cast us out of his presence. And when we are out of his presence, just like a fish out of water dies, we die spiritually. But God in his great mercy has sent his son Jesus to save us. See, Jesus died on the cross, offering up the temple of his body to be destroyed for our sins so that those who repent of their sins and trust in him can be restored to God's presence and built up as a holy temple in him. Jesus died and rose again so that we can know the comfort of God's presence through his spirit. Friend, what I'm offering you this morning is not a gimmick. You don't have to give us money. You don't have to do anything to earn your way to heaven. God himself has come down in the person of his son. And he has called you to turn away from your sins, to turn away from your self-reliance and put your trust in Christ alone. Trust in Jesus and you will be forgiven of your sins. And you can know the sweet fellowship of his presence. Put your trust in Jesus Christ. And yes, that means you must say no to every other God, every other religion, and trust in him alone. He alone can save you from the judgment of God. And he alone can save you from your 
destructive self. But if you are in Christ, you can know the encouragement of his presence. Beloved, here's how you should fight for joy and encouragement. Remember three things. Number one, remember who you are. Remember that Jesus died for your sins and because of what Jesus did, you are now reconciled to God and he is the only permanent thing in your life. Never forget that. Number two, remember that your heavenly father is sovereign. Everything that you receive from him is an act of his sovereign mercy and kindness. Things that you do not deserve and things that he is not obligated to give you. And so if he in his sovereign wisdom decides not to give you a wife or a baby or good health, perhaps even your most basic needs, then remember that he has decided not to give you that thing for your sanctification and for your eternal good. He loves you. He loves you and will not withhold anything that he thinks is not good for you. Because he knows you better than you know yourself. He knows what's good for you. And when he does things like that, here's the third thing you should remember. Remember that he is for you. Your heavenly father is for you. He who did not spare his own son will do whatever it takes to destroy your idols and to make you more like his son. He will do whatever it takes to empower your faithfulness and to finish what he started. He will never leave you or forsake you. Friends, that is the only stable thing in your life and that's all you need. That's all you need. And knowing that fact will keep you from being discouraged and making idols out of good things. But that's not the only way God encourages his people. Fear is driven out and God's people are encouraged not just by his presence, but also by his promises. Which brings us to our second point. God's people are encouraged by his promises. Look at verses 6 to 7. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. Why should they not fear and be steadfast in their task of building? Because in a little while, God will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. The God of the armies of heaven says, wait just a little while and I will shake everything. What you expect is coming. It's in the future. The interval will not be long before the Lord begins to shake all of creation. Now, what does that mean? You see, when you read the prophets, you will find that they borrow a lot of imagery from past events to, dramat to dramatize future events. Borrow from the past to explain the future. So in Israel's past, earthquakes had become a symbol of God's supernatural intervention. A sort of sudden interruption of the normal, something that comes without warning and strikes terror in the hearts of all. And so the idea here is that God was going to suddenly shake up all the nations. He's going to do something supernatural so that they would part with their treasures. And what's the point? Remember the setting. They're discouraged. And God says, God's promises that he will supply 
all that is lacking in that house. He'll take care of it. And so they were to trust that word and work obediently. Filling the house with glory was his prerogative. I will fill this house with glory, the text says. If he could use other nations to judge Israel, he could certainly use other nations to bless Israel materially, particularly for the task of building his house. Now, what gives God the right to do that? Simply this, look at verse eight. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. God is the one who owns it all. God is the one who distributes wealth according to his will and to whoever he wills. He is the one who raises kings and deposes emperors. He is, as the text says, the Lord of hosts. Beloved, is this the God you worship? As you think about God's presence and his promise, is this the God you think of? A God who tells you that he will do for his people what he has said in his word. Because if this is not the God you have in your mind, if your mind is not shaped by his word, that you, then you cannot be satisfied in him. His presence will be of no comfort to you. No, we must go to God's word to be reminded what he's done for us in the past and be reminded of his sure promises for the future. And that's what the Lord does in this text. Look at verse 9. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. Not only does the Lord promise that he will provide all that is needed to complete the temple, but he also promises that the glory of the present temple is, is, would, be, would be greater than Solomon's temple. Now, in a very real material sense, that did come to pass. Mark tells us that the temple during Jesus' time was magnificent. The wealth of the nations did come in. King Darius himself sent gold and silver. He even paid for the expenses of the workers from the royal treasury. Imagine that. You can read about that in Ezra chapter 6. And so the Lord of hosts was indeed shaking the nations. But you see, the temple pointed forward to Jesus himself. Jesus referred to his own body as the temple in John 2.21. And when he was raised from the dead and glorified with a new resurrection body, his disciples recalled what he had said and they believed the scriptures. Beloved, that promise of the future glory of the temple being greater than the former found its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ. In Christ, the very essence and the purpose of the Old Testament temple was fulfilled. Because in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus and through him to reconcile to himself all things. That's Colossians 1, 19 and 20. And that reconciliation is what is alluded to in verse 9 when God says, look at the text, and in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, this place in the text is probably a play on, on words that refers to Jerusalem, the city of peace. He's also speaking specifically of that temple. And he's speaking of it in the future. You see, in the Old Testament, peace or shalom sort of sums up all the blessings of the messianic age in which God would rule with righteousness. The Messiah is the prince of peace. And at his birth, what did the angels announce? Peace on earth among those with whom God is pleased. See, peace is experienced by those who God is gracious toward. 
The prophet Ezekiel also saw a temple in the future and he said all of God's salvation blessings are going to flow out of that temple. And Ephesians 2.14 says that Christ himself is our peace. Now here's another way we can know that this is the right way to, to read and understand the text. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. The writer to the Hebrews picks up this theme. He pick up, picks up this theme from Haggai and he connects it to the church and the new covenant and the consummation of all things. So when the church, the new covenant people of God gather in worship, this is the spiritual reality we come to. Hebrews 12, 22 to 24. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly or church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. See, what the writer is comparing this worship gathering to, if you look up a few verses earlier, he's comparing this gathering to the gathering that took place at Mount Sinai. Coming to Mount Sinai was terrifying, but coming to Mount Zion is comforting, is comforting. Now when you get to verses 26 to 29, look down at verses 26 to 29. He says, at that time, his voice shook the earth. Everything shook at Sinai. But now he has promised, quoting Haggai 2.6, Yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, so here's the writer's commentary. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is things that have been made, created things of this age. In order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. So you see the writer of the Hebrews teaches us that while there was a shaking in Haggai's day, more shaking is in the future when the new creation comes in all its glory. And this means that Haggai's prophecy of future glory indeed became a reality in Christ. We have already received an unshakable kingdom, but it will be fully realized when Christ returns and brings all things to its appointed end. Oh, friends, in light of this hopeful word, we ought to be encouraged and be strong and work to build up the church. When the fullness of the new creation comes in, when the new heavens and the new earth comes in, when we will see the glory of God and we will see the glory and the honor of the nations come in and there will be no need for a temple. You see that in Revelation 21, 22 to 26. Beloved, as pilgrims, as sojourners, looking forward to that heavenly city, God's word of promise should give us hope. It should encourage us greatly in the task of building up the church together. We ought to be encouraged that our labors will not be in vain. So don't be discouraged in your discipleship if you don't see much progress. But rejoice in the small things. Look for evidences of grace that you can praise God for in the lives of one another. 
The spiritual progress of your brothers and sisters may look like nothing in your eyes. But try to see the church through the lens of God's word. See the church as God sees her. Now I confess we're not perfect, far from it. To say that we are perfect would be theologically incorrect, knowing that we're not yet glorified. But saying that would also be a lie, wouldn't it? We are not where we should be. And sometimes striving together in love and holiness gets a little messy. Toes get stepped on. Relationships get messy. We sin against one another. But get this. Not how it should be is not the same as not how it's going to be. There is hope because of God's promises. We can be encouraged about our labors because we can trust in his labors. And we can look back and we can definitely see that we are not how we used to be. Amen? So don't be discouraged, beloved. Don't be discouraged in your evangelism or in your counseling, in your parenting, in your battle against sin, in your discipling. Remember that the church is the only institution that God has promised his presence and his power. And his power comes through his gospel promises. God has promised to build his church. So get busy with the task of making disciples, teaching them to obey everything that Jesus has commanded because he is with you. Sometimes obedience is a joy. And sometimes because of our sinful affections and idolatry, it can be hard. But be encouraged because the future is very bright and very glorious. All things are possible with God. But some things come later. We're not there yet. We will be when Jesus returns and makes all things new and he ushers in the eternal state. There is a final shaking yet to come. And until then, we must lean on his presence and his promises for our encouragement. And here's the most important aspect of working together. Encourage one another. Encourage one another. Our Heavenly Father encourages His children even when their work doesn't amount, seem to amount to much. So let me like ask you this. Are you like your Father? Are you like your Father? Beloved, we are commanded to do this. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up. As people of the Spirit, we ought to be comforters, encouragers. Are you encouraging one another with reminders of God's presence and His promises? Beloved, this is your chief work as a, as a member in the body of Christ. So let me ask you this. What are you going to do after this service is over? You know, if you came here only to be encouraged yourself by God's Word, but you don't have a word of encouragement for a brother or sister who has served you well or led you well or prayed well or taught your children well, then I fear that your approach to membership may be very self-centered. You know, before coming to the service, you should pray and ask the Lord that he in his kind providence would lead you to someone who needs a word of encouragement from you. Pray that before you come. Let me encourage you to do that, even now. Go up to Pastor Alex after the service and encourage him by offering him 
God-centered encouragement. So if he prayed for you, encourage him in his labors by saying, thank you for praying for me, brother. And, and tell him specifically how his prayer to God on your behalf comforted your soul and strengthened your faith. If what Pastor Samson said in the prayer of confession brought a sense of conviction by the Holy Spirit, go encourage him. Tell him how the Lord used him to remind you of your sin and shortcomings and how you were encouraged to turn to Christ. Consider thanking the folks who minister to your children every Sunday morning. Encourage them. Tell them what your child was able to learn well, what, what they recall at the dinner table. Oh, it will bless their work and energize their spirits. Do that. Go and remind people who are, who, who are suffering trials. Go tell our sister Shaolin that Jesus will never leave her nor forsake her in her trials. Do that specifically as you talk to people. Bring up God's promises, his word. You know, if a wife or a mother has set aside time from her family to disciple you and counsel you because she has her priorities right, don't just thank her, but tell her. Tell her how the truths that she speaks to you has changed your life in specific ways and caused you to love Jesus more. Encourage them. If you prayed for a member during the week, don't just pray, but call them up and tell them that you prayed for them. Tell them what you prayed for them. After the service, ask one another how your week has been, what your struggles have been. And don't just say you pray. Pray. Just go sit in a corner and pray. Do it. Encourage them. Husbands and wives, I want you to think about this. Have you been starving each other of encouragement that each other needs? Clearly, God thinks that we need it. Beloved, speak God's promises to each other. And you will be empowering one another with hope. Encourage one another. Because we have a great hope. We have an eternal hope. And we're reminded of, reminded of that because of God's presence indwelling in us as a guarantee of what is to come. And we have very great and precious promises that we can stand on. His presence and His promises will make us heartily willing to live for Him and to build one another up. So plod on. Don't be discouraged. Jesus has promised he will build his church. He will supply every grace that we need. Don't be discouraged. Persevere in your labors. Be strong because he is with us. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that in all our labors, we would fix our eyes on Jesus. May we remember that someone might preach, someone else may counsel, but it is you who gives the growth. Lord, we pray that we would not fail to encourage one another to greater Christ-likeness. Teach us to be present in each other's lives and encourage one another to love and good works. And may we do this all, not for earthly gain, but for your heavenly smile. In Christ's name we pray.